Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. When I was younger, I was told that soy is really good for you. It's a wonderful meat alternative, that it's a health food, that it's natural. And over the years, we've been finding out that the science on soy says something totally different. We've invited Dr. Kayla Daniel the author of The Whole Soy Story, was a PhD in nutrition who's called The Naughty Nutritionist. She has written a blockbuster book on the entire inner world and science of soy, including the politics of it and its history. No matter who you are, if you eat soy or if children that you know and young people are being given soy, You've got to listen to this. You've got to listen to her. And you've got to pick up her book, The Whole Soy Story. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Dr. Kayla Daniel to It's Rainmaking Time. Good morning. Good morning. I'm sure that the people that eat soy, and it's in so many products now, are going to be rather shocked at what you're about to share. You know, when we get invested in the food we eat and we get invested over the years, we're really coming from that what we're eating is good for us. Sometimes it's hard to hear this, but I want the public to hear it because soy is not neutral to the body. Talk a little bit about how you got involved in your examination and research about soy. Sure. Like, like many of us, I've been hearing that soy was a miracle food, that it could cure everything from cancer to ingrown toenails. And um, I wanted to believe it. I mean, the thought that something that was inexpensive and supposedly good for the environment uh, could, could help us be very, very healthy. But I started to discover that there, despite the headlines, there was no joy in soy. I discovered that in many different uh, healing traditions, soy was either used in small quantities as a pharmaceutical or it was on a don't eat list. And I discovered that there were studies going back, well, nearly 100 years now, uh, about how soy has uh, been linked to digestive distress, malnutrition, thyroid disorders, immune system breakdown, many, many reproductive problems, including PMS, uh, menopausal problems, infertility, even loss of libido. And what's going to be a huge surprise to many people, it's actually been linked to cancer, sometimes causing cancer or accelerating cancer, and it even can cause heart disease. And we know all of that from, from nearly 100 studies on many, many different types of animals, including the human animal. It is said, correct me if I'm wrong, that the first written record of the soybean plant is contained in a book called Ben Sao Kang Mu where it describes the plants of China by Emperor Shang Nung in 2838 BC, and that it's been cultivated and eaten ever since then. It's been eaten for over 4,800 years. Do you agree with that? Soy was first valued as a nitrogen uh, fixer. It, in other words, it's used uh, for crop rotation to uh, improve soy quality. That was um, what it's been used for for many, many thousands of years. Uh, as a food, it actually did not get into the food supply uh, until about 2,500 years ago. Now, people who are fans of soy uh, will promote the idea that soy has been used for thousands and thousands of years, tens of thousands of years, and in fact, that's not true. In terms of evolution, soy is a fairly new product. 
when you say soy is a new product, do you mean like the engineering of soy foods, like soy hot dogs, soy protein powders, and that kind of stuff? Is that what you mean? Uh, those are particularly new because the uh, ingredients, the soy ingredients that are used in things like veggie burgers and uh, soy hot dogs and some of those products came in after World War II. They are ingredients like soy protein isolate, hydrolyzed plant protein, textured vegetable protein, etc. And those are highly industrialized processed ingredients. And they did not come into the food supply until after World War II. So they are very much an experiment. Now, all soy products, including and tofu, uh, came in no earlier than about 2,500 years ago. So in terms of evolution, that is quite recent. And many people are surprised to learn that, that products like tempeh didn't even come in until well into the 80s. I know you say it in your book, but I want you to share it with the audience. How come products like tofu and tempeh took off in America? I wouldn't say tempeh is really taken off. Uh, I think that it's actually a healthy food because people tend to eat it in uh, moderation and it's at least lightly fermented. It's a traditional Indonesian food. And tempeh is fine, but it has a distinct flavor. It's not bland. It does not appeal to many Americans. So it has not taken off. Now, tofu uh, has not taken off to the extent that the soy industry would like it to, although there are now all sorts of tofu products that have had flavor enhancements with MSG and various other things. They're called ready-to-go, and so you're not getting just a white block. You're getting something that's already heavily flavored, uh, usually with MSG and other so-called natural flavorings, etc. And that has increased sales of tofu. But the soy industry has mostly put its energies into soy protein products because they really like products that take apart something. For example, with milk, if they sell low-fat milk, they can convince us to eat low-fat milk because it's healthy. Then they can take the fat and sell that in ice cream. And, of course, the people who drink the low-fat milk are going to crave ice cream so they can sell two products instead of one and make two times or even more money from that. Now, with the soybean, the way it works is the soybean is divided, and the first product that that Big Food was interested in was soy oil, which is the main ingredient in most of the vegetable oils. So they were taking apart the soybean to get the vegetable oil out of it, and then they had the residue, the soy protein, and the big question was, what are we going to do with it? And there was only so much they could feed to animals before the animals got fat too quickly, died prematurely, couldn't breed, and developed other problems. So they had to do something with this soy protein because it's not good business, after all, to pay to have it taken to the landfills and and dumped. You know, you want to turn it into a profit center. It makes an excellent fertilizer, but the chemical fertilizer companies had that market cornered. So they got onto the idea of selling soy protein as a health food. And in fact, they've been very, very successful at marketing it as a health food. And the thing is, if upper-class people want to pay and pay well for soy as a health food, then middle-class and lower-class people perceive it as a valuable product as well. So that was the first market that they marketed to, was people who could afford to pay for it. They market it as a health food because it had a horrible image as being a hippie food or a poverty food. Right, I remember. 
That's something that either you were eating at a hippie commune or you were forced to eat if you lived in Russia or Cuba. It had a horrible poverty image. So describe that evolution a little further. So that's how it was broken into the U.S. market? I would say so. And that that brilliant idea came uh, just a few decades ago. What about soy isolate? Soy isolate is a very modern uh, soy ingredient that came in after World War II. And to make it, there's a lot of uh, high pressure, high temperatures, acid and alkaline baths, uh, of course, hexane solvents, uh, very heavily processed soy ingredients, soy protein, just about pure soy protein. But because of the nature of the processing, it is full of... uh, carcinogenic residues, uh, and you can't really call it organic because there's hexane solvent in there and petroleum residues. And uh, it's uh, bland, which is one of the things the soy industry was after because their biggest problem in marketing soy as food was that, that there are these bitter aftertastes, and the soy industry did quite a lot to figure out how to get rid of the bitter aftertaste. What did they do? Uh, well, they developed soy protein isolate, and basically you can take something like, like a soybean, and if you abuse it through every process imaginable, at some point you can eliminate the bitter. And another thing that's happening these days is there's these new pharmaceutical flavorings that uh, don't affect the taste buds, but they buzz the brain cells directly, and they're being used in products to block bitter, such as you would find in soy or in basically any plant protein, such as pea protein as well. And some of these other new pharmaceutical flavorings uh, give the impression that you're eating salt or you're eating sugar or something like that, and it's allowing these big food manufacturers to to keep people thinking things taste right while still saying it's low salt, low fat, or low, low sweetener, or no MSG, because they can imitate these these particular flavors without actually providing them. Isn't it true that Hitler got involved in being an advocate and a champion for the soybeans? Hitler was a vegetarian, and uh, he was promoting soy at certain points, yes. And Mussolini as well, they were trying to develop a a polenta that had uh, soy flour in it. And aren't there different types of soybeans from different areas of the world? Where do they come from? Well, I think we're aware of them first coming from various parts of Asia, and there are different soybeans, different colors. Some of them, uh, when they're dry, are tan. Some of them are black, and some of the nutritional profiles are somewhat different. Uh, but the the soybeans that are mostly grown uh, for the, the foods that are heavily marketed are are the ones that have the highest risks, I suppose, in terms of the high phytoestrogen content, in terms of the anti-nutrients such as the protease inhibitors and phytates, etc. And in fact, there's no soybeans that have been developed that are free of those things. You say something at the beginning of your book that's very paradoxical, but given the rest of the book, I understand it. But you say the Chinese revered the soybean, but they did not eat it. How do you know that they didn't eat it? Uh, well, the historical records are pretty clear, and it was first valued uh, for its nitrogen-fixing roots, and you're seeing that in all the pictographs and things like that, that the emphasis was on the roots. 
And there's some historical records indicating when the first uh, meso got developed, for example, and it came about, uh, it was discovered accidentally, most likely, uh, because they were doing fermenting to preserve meats and other foods, because, of course, this was long before refrigeration. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Did you know that approximately 65,000 of the 70,000 chemicals that have been dumped into the environment are considered to be highly toxic? that we are ingesting those toxins through the air, the water, and the food supply, and that no matter how much you eat organic food and drink the best, purest water, we all have to detoxify from these chemicals that we're being bombarded with. We're also being bombarded with something invisible, the radiation fallout from Fukushima, one of the worst man-made environmental disasters humanity has seen since Chernobyl. In combination with the BP oil spill, the fact is that we have to detoxify our bodies of toxins and of the radiation. But how do you do that? You do that with rock-powdered zeolite. Zeolite is the most effective mineral you can take to detoxify your body. Zeolite has been used to treat Chernobyl victims, the land and agriculture. It's been very effective. It's also given to animals to detoxify as well. If you are interested in establishing a prevention program and detoxifying your body, go to etszeolite.com or call Hank Heister at 818-707-0468. And if you tell him it's rainmaking time, you will get free shipping for the product that you order. Call Hank Heister at 818-707-0468 and order your Zeolite today. And back to the show. What do you think of Europe's involvement or participation bringing soy to Europe? Do you know much about the European perspective on this? Well, it's very much like when it was first brought to America by people like Ben Franklin. Uh, the soybean was, was a curiosity. Uh, it was amusing to some people. And somebody who was inventive like Ben Franklin, for example, uh, wanted to give it a try, see what it could do, etc. It was used in some of the courts of Europe. Uh, soy sauce became became popular. Uh, but it didn't really take off for, for many, many years. It was, it was really a curiosity. Based on your research, do you have the same perspective about edamame? An interesting case because what we've got now is whole cases full of the stuff being sold at Whole Foods Market and other health food stores. And people are really buying that stuff. And the problem is they're eating whole bags of it. They're eating it like popcorn. And uh, when you're eating something like edamame in such a huge quantity, that's when it becomes risky. If you go to a Japanese restaurant and order it as an appetizer, you're going to get six little pods in a bowl. Not a big deal. If you're eating a whole bag while you're watching television, that's, that's risky. I remember eating a bag some years ago exactly watching a show. I was so sick afterward, I can't even tell you. I didn't even know what happened to me. I was told they're health foods, you know. I just stopped buying it, but I didn't know why. They're, they're hard to digest. I've had the same experience. I thought it was a nice lima bean substitute, but um, I was experiencing some digestive problems from it. Can you explain to the audience what a phytate is and why this is important to know about? 
The most important thing to know is that phytates block mineral absorption. And they are the main reason that in third world countries where people do not have enough meat and other animal products to eat and who depend on grain for their nutrition, that they have a lot of incidences of poor bones and rickets and some of these other problems. Because if your diet is high in grains or beans or seeds that have not been prepared properly through old-fashioned soaking, the, uh, the problem is that the calcium and zinc and other minerals that we find in those plant-based uh, foods, such as grains, seeds, and nuts, will they're, they're going to block them. So somebody is going to be malnourished, and that's why there's so much rickets in those countries. I'm sure that you're well aware for many, many years how mothers are giving their children when they can't give them their own milk, they're giving them soy milk. What do you think about this? There's, there's a huge amount of evidence that soy infant formula should never, ever be used except as a last resort. And there really are other options for, for mothers who have sickly babies that cannot tolerate even their own breast milk. Um, the Israeli food... The Israeli Health Ministry, the German Institute of Risk Assessment, the French Food Agency, the Swiss, uh, uh, the Swiss um, Office of, of Health, the Swedish Food Administration, many, many other countries have strongly warned that, that we should not be using soy formula. And um, some of the risks to the baby include the phytoestrogens, the plant estrogens that will interfere with the baby's a developing body and brain. That's, that's really the issue. There's a huge wallop of these plant estrogens in soy infant formula. And in addition to that, there are the anti-nutrients such as the phytates that block the baby from getting the minerals it needs. There are protease inhibitors making it hard to digest for the baby. Uh, instead of lactose, the milk sugar in mother's milk, there will be awful sugars in there that do not support health and development. There's multiple problems with soy infant formula. There's a high quantity of manganese that comes naturally in soybeans. And in soy infant formula, it comes down to 50 to 80 times more than we find in either breast milk or dairy milk. And that's a whopping dose of manganese for a growing baby under six months, years, six months of age because the baby's developing brain and the developing liver. The liver is not able at that early stage to get rid of the excess manganese and it can be very toxic to the baby. Have you had anybody from the industry try to stop what you're doing? Uh, the in industry's been interesting. Uh, they mostly have tried to ignore the book. They never mention it by name. Uh, they just dismiss it and they basically hoped it would go away. Unfortunately for them, I'm very persistent, and it has not gone away, and sales are steady after after six years. Uh, at the point I was writing the book, no one knew about it. It was kept top secret. I was able to infiltrate a whole lot of soy symposia. I was able to interact with a lot of their scientists, ask them questions. I overheard many things, and the reason I was able to do that is nobody knew what I was working on. Thank God. Talk a little bit about rancidity. I really don't think soy lovers and people that have soy in their diet are thinking about this. 
I think rancidity is an issue with, with many, many modern food products. And I'm saying food products because rancidity is often what will develop when, when something is taken apart by father technology. Rancidity is a problem. Now, with, with soybeans, rancidity is particularly a problem having to do with uh, soy oil because soy oil does contain some omega-3s, and the soy industry likes to tout that as being one of the reasons it's healthy. But the risk to omega-3s is they very easily go rancid, and in soy oil, they definitely go rancid quickly. And there are some of those oil residues uh, that are present with soy protein because the nature of, of taking apart the soybean, there are going to be molecules of, of soy oil in the soy protein and some soy protein in the soy oil. And there's, there's just rancidity when there's high heat, there's high temperature, some of these industrial processes. With the soy oil, the industry has developed all sorts of techniques something, believe it or not, called deodorizing, where they get rid of the rancid smell. It's still rancid. People just don't smell it and know it's rancid. And um, with soy protein, the bitterness and any rancidity in there is pretty much covered up with artificial flavorings and MSG, and most people are really not aware of it. But again, I, I really want to be clear that it's not just soybeans. You're going to find things like that with, with any kind of modern industrialized food product. So there's a lot of them out there. The only one that I'm aware of that I've heard doesn't go rancid is coconut oil. Coconut oil uh, is is not going to go rancid. It, it has a really great shelf life. Uh, but of course, you know, we're talking about... A, a traditional product high in saturated fat, and the high in saturated fat is the key to why it does not go rancid. And that is also why traditional animal fats like tallow can be used very safely. They don't go rancid. In fact, in the good old days when McDonald's french fries tasted good, it was because they were using tallow. And I would never say those French foods were a genuine health food, but, uh, gee, we could enjoy them once in a while, and it was not a problem. And the reason it was not a problem was because they used tallow. I see soy in a lot of supplemental products, and I've always wondered, why are they doing that? Why can't they put something else in the products? Can you explain yeah, I would say the main reason they're doing it is because they're trying to capitalize on the image of soy as being healthy. And so they're sticking it in all sorts of products, uh, some, some, everything from beauty products to vitamin supplements. And with some of the vitamins, it's just nonsense. They're advertising it as having all the virtues of miso and some good traditional soy products. But there's, of course, not enough in there to possibly have that effect anyway. Uh, and I just feel that it's a disreputable thing to be be capitalizing on that. It's it's not right for consumers. You make a long chapter on lectins, and I want you to explain to the audience what a lectin is, why it's relevant, and how soybean lectins work or create dysfunction. Well, first of all, lectin a lectin is an anti nutrient. Um, it, it is blocking our ability to, to use uh, any food um, in, in terms of its effect on digestion particularly. Uh, lectins are, I guess we could call them a protein with a sweet tooth. It's basically they're something that bites into carbohydrates, particularly the sugars. And um, 
it's somewhat complicated, but cell membranes do include those sugars, and in sensitive people particularly, uh, the lectins can really damage the gut lining because it damages the cells in there. And lectins uh, have the ability to cause clotting and um, what they call hemagglutining. <laughs> and um, those uh, can, put, can put some people at risk. Now, partly it's with, with any toxin, it's a matter of dose, it's a matter of duration, factors like that. Some people are more sensitive to soybean lectins than others. And of course, other people, uh, other foods have lectins as well. And uh, Peter Diadamo did a book, uh, the blood, the blood type diet, and he has identified a lot of different lectins that that are problems for different blood types. For instance, type O blood people will be more reactive to certain types of lectins. Type A blood to other types. Um, I would not say lectins are the biggest problem with soybeans. I'd be much more concerned with the estrogens, with the protease inhibitors blocking pro, uh, protein digestion, with the phytates blocking uh, mineral absorption. Uh, lectins are just one more factor, and when you start adding up all of these things together, they are quite risky. What do you say to people who may say, look, the Chinese and the Japanese have been eating this food for centuries. They seem to be fine. Uh, well, there's several parts to that question. Uh, first of all, the Asians have been eating soy for, for about 2,500 years. Uh, the first thing about that is they're eating small quantities of traditional types of soy food. They're eating it as condiments in the diet and not staple foods. They are not eating soy for breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snacks, and they're certainly not noshing on soy energy bars and blending up soy shakes. They're not eating veggie burgers. They're not eating any of these newfangled products. And surprisingly to many people, they are also not drinking soy milk. The first historical reference to soy milk is 1877, and soy milk was first popularized in, in China in the 1920s and 30s by Seventh-day Adventist missionaries from America. So it is not something that is traditional, and it is, has not traditionally been, been drunk. So we've got small quantities of soy that Asians have been eating. The other thing to keep in mind is that Asia is a large continent with many different dietary customs, many different lifestyle factors, and in some areas they eat more soy than others. But nowhere that you go are they eating huge quantities, except perhaps in, in Zen monasteries where the monks are eating soy because they're vegetarians and because they learned that uh, soy actually helps them maintain their vows of chastity. I was going to say, I want you to talk about that because I found that fascinating. It is fascinating. Uh, the monks basically discovered that when the soy consumption went up, the naughty behavior went down. <laughs> so they put the tofu and other soy products on the menu. So folks, if you want to kill your libido, add the soy. Uh, or if you've got an issue with your husband or partner, because Japanese women, uh, uh, traditionally, uh, they will feed more soy to unfaithful husbands. <laughs> Where did you find that out? Well, that's, you know, in the realm of stories and anecdotes and letters, etc. cetera. Uh, but it does seem to be something we've heard from several sources. How interesting. 
What other kind of interesting tidbits like that do you have? Well, it's an election year. I think soy is excellent for politicians, particularly ones with the zipper problem. <laughs> well, that's a lot of politicians. Right, right. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, back to your original question. So soy uh, has not been eaten heavily in Asia traditionally. Of course, the American soy industry is doing their best to sell all sorts of soybean products to the Asians. And, of course, they're marketing it, it as their, as their uh, heritage, which, of course, it's not. But, you know, that's a good marketing strategy. But then getting back to the... the issue you raised about are they healthier than we are and the answer is actually they're not healthier than we are they just have different health issues and people are forever saying that Asians have lower levels of cancer well they have lower levels of breast cancer prostate cancer and colon cancer but they have higher levels of thyroid esophageal stomach um, uh, liver and some other cancers. So my feeling is, first of all, they're not eating that much soy anyway, and I think there's a lot of dietary and lifestyle factors to to weigh in with, whether we're saying that soy helps them prevent cancer or it causes cancers that they do have. The iodine factor, I think we should talk about, because one of the things that was said through a study of the Japanese women and the health of their breasts is that because they had more natural iodine in their diet, they had a lower risk of breast cancer than, let's say, American women. Do you agree with that? And also, what do you think about soy's relation to iodine and what it does to the iodine factor in the body, which we as women and men, but which we as women need because, for example, our breasts take up 12.5 units of iodine a day. Supposedly, if we don't have more than that, it goes to the body to take it. What do you think of that? Uh, first of all, iodine is a serious issue these days anyway. Uh, most people are, are becoming iodine deficient. And the National Center for Health Statistics has reported that, that iodine intake decreased by more than 50% between uh, some surveys they did around 1970 and another survey they did in 1990. Now, they're probably due to do another one soon, and I expect that's going to show even lower iodine intake. So we're starting off with a situation where many, many people in the United States are already depleted in iodine. And then the fashionability of vegetarian diets is making that that even worse because uh, it's not just vegetarian diets, it's vegan diets that are being promoted. And uh, the foods with the highest iodine content are fish and, and milk. So a lot of people, particularly vegans, are showing up iodine deficient. And if you add into that high soy consumption uh, with low iodine, you're, you, that's a prescription for trouble. But the thing is, even if you have enough iodine, soy will eventually start causing problems with your thyroid. And by eventually, it could be as quickly as within a month or two. So this is not something that people should be taking and just getting enough iodine is not going to prevent the problem. When I was very young, I was a tournament tennis player. I started at 7, but around 12, somewhere around there, I remember soy taking off, and I started to eat a ton of soy. By the time I was 12, my thyroid stopped working completely, and I was put on all the synthetic thyroid 
they just didn't know what they know today. But I never correlated how much soybeans I was eating. I used to eat a ton of them, you know, when it took off the health food and all that, and it's good for you and it has all. I never equated that with the interference with my own thyroid functioning at all. A lot of athletes have been uh, trained to think that, that soy protein shakes are the way to build muscle and the way to go. And in fact, the old athletes, some of the old bodybuilders, which has been Gironda, they, they called soy, um, actually they called it one of those four-letter words, and um, they were people who were eating as much as, say, 36 eggs a day in order to build muscle and to be super healthy. So I think the bodybuilders are starting to finally get the message again, there are problems with, with soybeans. But in terms of what you were saying with soy and the thyroid, one of the interesting things is everyone talks about how, how the Japanese, say, have lower rates of breast cancer, and there's an assumption that their thyroids are, are good because they eat a lot of seaweed and get a lot of iodine. But there are a lot of thyroid problems in, in Japan, and when you think about the fact that, say, Hashimoto's thyroiditis is, well, Hashimoto is a Japanese word, isn't it? Yes. And some of the best thyroid clinics in the world, uh, the Ishimuki Clinic, for example, Ishizuki Clinic, they did some of the best studies on human subjects about the risks of soybeans to the thyroid. So the reason they've got those clinics and they're naming, uh, they're naming some of these thyroid diseases in a Japanese way, that, that should be a warning to us. Do you think that the leftover radiation from the atomic bomb is also a reason for the cancers? Not even to mention Fukushima. That's a whole other fairly new development. But do you think that that also has a place for why we see whatever cancers we do in Japan? Uh, absolutely. But uh, that radiation's all over the world now. And um, I would never blame, say, just soy or just radiation on all the thyroid problems and the cancer. I'm right. In terms of thyroid disease, there are so many causes, you know, radiation, but also mercury, fluoride, chlorine in the water supply, plastics, pesticides, uh, solvents, estrogens um, in the environment. Now we've got all over the U.S. there are areas where fracking is going on, and that can affect the thyroid. So soy is one huge factor uh, and one that people can avoid, but there are other things too. Yes, of course like a full-scale massive assault, if you will. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. No matter what the state of the economy is, there will always be time-honored traditions and special events. The Sterling Hut has been in business since 2008, offering a wide range of fantastic sterling silver products, including finely crafted mint julep cups, personalized baby shower gifts, photo albums, exquisite jewelry boxes and awards, and so much more. The Sterling Hut is an authorized Silver Star international reseller of fine silver products and anniversary gifts. The business is owned by Jewel and Bob Howard. If you would be interested in buying someone a gift of pure sterling silver or sterling plated silver, you can call 1-888-819-1009. Get a 15% discount by going to the Sterling Hut, the Sterling, S-T-E-R-L-I-N-G, Hut, H-U-T, dot com, and saying it's rainmaking time. They will honor a 15% discount for you. 
Beautiful sterling silver gifts for all of life's occasions. Manufactured in Italy and handcrafted by skilled artisans. They can also be engraved in sterling picture frames, oval and rectangular silver trays, champagne ice buckets, silver goblets, coffee and tea service, coffee pots, silver mugs, candelabras, and silver jewelry unrivaled in design and style. Go to the Sterling Hut at sterlinghut.com. And back to the show. What do you think the soy industry is going to do when the knowledge that you've synthesized becomes more mainstream? What strategy do you think they're going to take? Well, at this point, what they're doing uh, is whining. And it's really fun to look at industry newsletters where they where they start whining about how the, the growth of soy protein product sales has slowed or in some cases stopped and even gone down a little. Now, we've got a long ways to go before those sales really dip and become really low. But uh, the soybean industry is is not achieving what it wanted to in terms of growth. And at this point, they're trying to market their products all over the world. Uh, They're trying to expand their markets, uh, but things have slowed and other products are are starting to take off as as soy's image has been um, somewhat diminished. Can we talk a little bit about soy in animal feed? Uh, Sure. Uh, The USDA did did studies over several decades where they were trying to find ways to process soybeans so that so that the animals could take more soy in their feed and remain healthy. And after decades of, of work with some of the very top scientists in the world, they basically came up pretty empty because there's really only so much soy that can be put in, say, chicken feed or pig feed or cattle feed before the animals get way, way sick too quickly. Now, mind you, the the uh, the beef and dairy and chicken industry, etc., they all want their animals to get fat as soon as possible, so they don't really mind the, the, the bad effect on the thyroid and the animal being more lethargic and getting fat sooner, but... There's a point at which the, the the soy causes health problems just too quickly. I mean, you can't have those animals dying too quickly. It affects profits. So there's only so much soy they can use. Now, that's one of the reasons, of course, that they decided they wanted to try to feed people what they had left over. Now, in terms of us, when we eat animal products, if the animal has been fed soy, the, the the meat is just not going to be as nutritious as it would be if the animal was eating what the animal was naturally put on earth to eat. I mean, cows are not meant to be eating grains, and they're not meant to be eating corn, they're not meant to be eating soy, they're meant to be out there eating grass. And there's a huge difference in the, the nutritional profile of products uh, from animals that are grass-fed and living outdoors the way they're meant to live and factory-farmed animals being fed soy and corn and other grains. The other thing is for, for many people who have allergies, the soy in meat products is making many people think they're allergic eggs or they think they're allergic to chickens or they're allergic to beef because they're actually reacting to the soy in those animal products. 
That's very interesting. You know, I wish we could actually know what the animals were fed. They're now starting to show in some places, but it's getting to the point where it's not as fun to shop anymore because you have to look at numbers to see if it's GMO. My biggest fear with regard to the next level for soy is if soy goes GMO. Uh, Most soy is already GMO, and you're not protected if you're shopping at health food stores because a lot of it is not disclosed. Um, And in terms of our ability to shop for healthy foods, we really need to make a commitment to know our farmers, to shop locally, and to also be willing to pay more to get, say, eggs from soy-free chickens, for example. And those eggs will be tasting better. They've got harder shells there. Uh, more delicious. The yolks will be very, very orange, more nutritional value. But people need to understand that it's going to cost more and they have to be willing to pay more. But on the plus side, besides the health advantages and knowing you are truly doing something good for the environment, there's the whole community uh, that when you know your farmers, this is a very different experience from uh, going to a supermarket and loading up. And many, many people today are starved for real connection with people. And this is one of the ways we can do it. Know your farmer. Don't you think there's a distinction, too, between going to a farmer's market, which I love to do, but I don't always know the farmers and the people sometimes that are selling the product by the time they get it to a local farmer's market are not necessarily the farmers. Some are and some aren't. I actually think going to the farms would be good, don't you? If you've got a farm that you can go to, if you can buy from the farm, uh, say if you go every Saturday with your children, that's wonderful. Uh, With farmer's markets, it is good to interact, to talk with people, you know, find out if the person at the booth is the person on the farm, find out what the connection is, uh, just get to know people. I want to bring something up that really, really upset me in your book. I want to bring it up because it's about metals and aluminum. I think you said that the aluminum levels, it's on page 266, the aluminum levels of all infant formulas are much, much higher than those of breast milk, with the very highest levels found in soy formulas made with soy protein isolate. You say soy infant formulas contain 100 times the aluminum found in breast milk. This is astounding. Talk about this. How did you figure this out? Uh, well, I would have to look. I think, I think there's references in there. Uh, but aluminum is in general a huge problem with processed food products. There's aluminum packaging around many, many food products that people are buying. Uh, people are buying soda in aluminum cans. They're buying, say, soy milk in, in, um, packages that are lined in aluminum. Uh, Many, many people are very toxic with aluminum, say some of the clients I'm working with. um, Aluminum is widely used in vaccines now when they take out the mercury because people have demanded it. What they slipped in instead is aluminum, and that is just as much of a problem. So we've got a situation where there are so many people today who have toxic levels of aluminum in their bodies, and that's affecting their bodies and brains. Who are your biggest known enemies in this area? Uh, Well, I don't know that I have enemies exactly. Um, Obviously, I've cut back on some profits for the soy industry, and by their own estimates, I've cost them about $4 billion. So I would say I'm not too popular with those people. 
there's many vegans who are also angry because they see soy as their, uh, their meat and dairy replacement, and I've taken away a couple whole food groups from them. And, of course, they're very, very angry, and many are accusing me of taking money from, from the beef and dairy industries. But the fact is the, the beef and dairy industries, well, first of all, they don't like me any better because I'm supporting local farmers, I'm supporting raw milk, I'm supporting pasture, grass-fed uh, animal products only. But the other thing people do not realize is that most of the big companies that sell soy, such as, um, say, White Wave, White Wave is owned by Dean Foods. Um, these companies are all together now. It's not a situation where soy is competing with dairy. The big companies own both. Richard Fine would call it a concert of action. Some people would look at it like a cartel, you know, like a monopoly, basically. Yeah, so many of the of the old organic companies that were started by well-meaning hippies, etc., they've all been bought up by big corporations at this point. And so many people just do not realize that, but unfortunately, that's the way it is right now. The corruption of organic, the buying off of scientists, uh, many, many problems here. The buying off of scientists and the firing of scientists. Exactly, and that's been going on for a while. One of the interesting things about the really old studies is they're much better studies because back when the scientists were honest scientists and their funding did not depend on coming out with conclusions that big big business wanted to hear. There's a wonderful doctor, Russell Blaylock, who spoke very highly of your book, and he says the nutritional literature is littered with books extolling the virtues of soy and soy products. Unfortunately, most are based on hype poor research, and manipulated science. This book explores the history of soy, defines the various types of historical soy products, and then proceeds to explore the science of soy and soy products in great detail. He says, I have found it to be a tremendous encyclopedia of knowledge concerning the subject. Having studied soy products for some years, Dr. Daniels taught me a considerable amount about soy. The sections on soy and cancer are especially valuable since so many women have been convinced that soy products prevent breast cancers, when in fact there is compelling evidence the opposite is true. I strongly recommend this book for all of those interested in the truth about soy and soy products. That's a pretty big testimonial. Yes, I'm very grateful to have gotten that from Dr. Blaylock. Uh, He is one of my heroes, and I am indebted to him because he he has shown us how MSG is in many of many of these modern food products including things like soy milk and and all of these uh soy protein isolate and other modern products and uh MSG of course in its own right is a neurotoxin as he has pointed out so it's not just the plant estrogens in soy that's MSG in many of the products there's just many, many reasons to avoid modern soy products. And I understand MSG has also been renamed. Sometimes they call it something else. Well, they hide it very frequently. If you've got a product that the ingredient list has something like natural food flavoring or autolyzed yeast extract or hydrolyzed corn protein or hydrolyzed whey protein or hydrolyzed soy protein, all of those have MSG as a residue. So the package can say no MSG, but if it contains any of those ingredients, guess what's in there? It's fascinating. It's amazing that 
These companies are allowed to do this. It's just phenomenal. It literally has to be a monopoly, you know. It very much is. And we as consumers, we have to, first of all, we need to be speaking up. We need to be voting with our dollars. We need to be demanding uh, truth in labeling everything from the truth about something like MSG to, of course, the truth about GMO. And that is a huge fight that we've got on our hands right now. And we as people also have to be willing to pay extra to get the pure products to support our local farmers because if we're not doing that, we're supporting the big food businesses that are essentially going to kill us. It's heavy. I live in California at this time, and the big vote regarding GMO labeling is coming up in November. I mean, it is huge. And I know Dr. Mercola has gotten involved to try to help, and so many people are doing what they can. We've got to vote that this must be labeled. We've got to. It must be labeled. And the thing is, if they're so proud of their products, why should they be trying to prevent us from knowing, right, if if those products are so good? You said that most of the soy now is GMO. How do you oh, absolutely now in the health food stores they will often have products that say organic soy and maybe maybe those products do contain organic soy but uh, there's problems with any soybeans whether or not they're organic because all the soybeans contain the plant estrogens and the anti nutrients we were talking about earlier it's just the GMO soy is so much worse. And um, I strongly recommend Jeffrey Smith's website and some of the stories he's had about how scientists have found major gut damage and reproductive damage and health problems. I interviewed Jeffrey uh, about a year and a half ago, and I just saw his new film on what's happening to the infiltration of the food supply, all about GMO. It was startling. Genetic Roulette is a great film. I strongly recommend it to everyone. And um, Kim, it would be just so great if you have him on his show before that election. I'll do that. I'll invite him. I'll definitely do that. Give me the name of which website you'd like me to have the audience go to. Uh, WholeSoyStory.com is my website. Okay. So is there anything else you'd like to say? Uh, No, I think we've, we've we've covered it. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to Dr. Kayla Daniel, the author of The Whole Soy Story and The Naughty Nutritionist. If you would like to reach her, you can go to thewholesoystory.com. She also has a blog, blog blog.wholesoystory.com, and you can order her book. Everybody should have this book. Thank you for all of the research that you've done for bringing it to us in a synthesized, understandable fashion, for taking a stand and going undercover to bring us this information. Thank you so much. Thank you.